On this week's Behind the Idea, we look at one of the most volatile stories in 2019's stock market, PG&E. News is breaking every day about this utility and its involvement in liabilities for various fires in California, its pending bankruptcy, and the stock itself. I talk about how this constant news flow could give human investors a bit of an edge. And you're not, Bloomberg won't pick up, for example, on the potential liabilities from the fire insurance until they're reported, which isn't going to come yet. And so there's this gap in information, gap in what's going to be fed into your machine, which in theory creates a fog within which opportunities can be found. Meanwhile, Mike wonders about the supposed safety of utility stocks. What's interesting to me about this story is that PG&E is a regulated monopoly and a utility. It kind of is one of these seemingly risk-free stocks that we are seeing some real dramatic downside in. Volatile stocks attract traders and professionals looking for an edge. Bankruptcies attract people with patience to work through complexity. Utilities attract dividend seekers looking for steady income. How does this all come together for PG&E? We discuss on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. We're covering a fast-moving story as we wade into the mess around Pacific General and Electric, PG&E, ticker symbol PCG. In a weekend newsletter for Seeking Alpha Essential subscribers, my colleague Mike pointed out the investment theme of diving in when news is bad, or what Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams called betting on the bad guys. There is a lot of bad news around PG&E which Seeking Alpha contributor Kyla Scanlon summarized nicely a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks is a long time here, as the company has since filed for bankruptcy and faced off with an activist investor. There's no other way to put it. I mean, what's going on here? We're going to try to stay ahead of the news, but there's a lot to pick apart. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast where we break down investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors from around the world share their investing ideas. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. And I should also mention we're recording this on Wednesday, January 23rd. And by the time you listen to this on the 29th, things will have changed as the bankruptcy issue that we discussed further in the podcast plays out. But we'll do our best. So I just want to begin, Mike, would you mind... Stating the quote from your article that covered this theme of dumpster diving. Yeah, sure. Before I read the quote, though, I just want to say that I find Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams to be a fine cartoonist as far as it goes. His social media activity on other subjects, I have no comment, endorsement, or critique either way for the purposes of this podcast. So this is nothing on this podcast is investment advice. Nothing on this podcast is Scott Adams advice either. So with that in mind. Can I just, I just want to interrupt that I hate Dilbert and have for a long time. The comic. I'm not discussing the person. I just always, not a thing. Okay. Okay. Great. Here's my quote from my recent column. Over the years, I've looked at corporate scandals and missteps as potential buying opportunities. 
Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams has a very user-friendly, if a bit unsavory, description of this strategy in his Wall Street Journal article about betting, quote, on the bad guys. And that's so that's what I wrote. And the reason I wrote that is because there is this observation about the stock market that investors can overreact to news and they can overreact to bad news. There's hurting effects and stocks, people can oversell stocks on bad news. That's the basic theory here. And it's also based on the concept that investors, when confronted with a situation involving potential corporate malfeasance or scandal or anything, and I'm not saying that PG&E specifically is being accused of malfeasance, although I think there's plenty of hair on the story, that investors can overreact emotionally to the corporate conduct itself additionally. And so Scott Adams' basic theory is that that presents an opportunity to buy stocks. And he references the BP oil spill as a specific example where the stock did well if you bought right at the moment of greatest PR crisis for the company. So I think that's an interesting strategy. It certainly makes a lot of intuitive sense. And I was also thinking about this in sort of a broader investment context of, I was writing about volatility recently and investigating. I, it's sort of a commonplace among investors that they take that stocks take the stairs up and take the elevator down. And the implication there is that stocks go down faster than they go up. And I looked into that a little bit and it actually depends on the time frame. So in the short term, and credit to Seeking Alpha author Force Majeure, who wrote about this in 2015, in the shorter term, stocks do go down faster than they go up historically, if you look at the S&P 500. But over a longer time frame, investments actually go up faster than they go down. And I think that's an interesting perspective on not only the, the overreaction to bad news, but there's another bias in investor behavior, which is underreaction to bad news, which is that you basically the bag holder phenomenon. People hold on to stocks even as they sort of slowly drift downward. People don't sell even though the news is out there that something bad has happened. And so I was thinking about that observation interconnected with these ideas of the different types of poor reactions investors can make. And it sort of fits nicely together this idea that there's overreaction to bad news in the short term. Stocks go down faster than they go up in the short term. And then in the longer term, stocks go up faster than they go down. Maybe that's reflective of this sort of refusal to sell on bad news over the longer term. So I think that's an interesting way to consider an investment or trading strategy. Maybe after a stock craters, it might be worthwhile to consider setting up a trade and trying to capture a bounce back from an oversold level. But maybe it's not such a great idea to invest for the long term after some terrible news comes out, because on average, it seems like stocks tend to drift slowly downward. And that's the bias that might be in play over the longer term. So that's just sort of a broad framework I just sort of arrived at when we're thinking about this kind of stuff. 
how to react to news and what type of tool an investor might consider given that bad news has just come out. What do you think of that? I think the idea of I've been thinking a lot recently about trying to take price action out of my screens. For a long time, I would screen based on 52-week lows or even more on underperformance of the S&P or other indexes as some sort of sign. But if I believe in focusing on the fundamentals as my first read and first reason to look at a company, then it seems inconsistent to look at price action. I think... Something like this where there's, I mean, we're talking about, I pulled up the one-year chart and PCG is driving along, driving along, and then all of a sudden, whoa, in November, it falls off one cliff. Then it kind of recovers. It's okay. It's bounced along in the market. It actually probably outperformed the market in December, bumping along, bumping along, and then all of a sudden in early January, boom, drops off again on two separate cliffs. And now we're kind of flatlined. And I think that's... Yeah, there's obviously something going on there and understanding that, and I guess that's what draws us to this conversation, understanding what's going on there, understanding at different times, what's the new information, was it foreseeable, how to consider it and how to position it accordingly. I think that makes for an interesting field of research and a field of, or an interesting topic to look into. And so that's, that's where I think I would fall out with this specific situation and the general approach where, yeah, I think you, and I guess also thinking a lot about how algorithmic trading and how to outthink the way that machines work or the way that they're programmed to work. In theory, there are two opportunities within this, which is what you were talking about, I think implicitly, that people over or underrate news based on whatever biases or whatever behaviors they have in their pocket. But then also machines may have trouble incorporating new information. One trivial point that we were talking about before we started was that PCG has $20 billion in equity as of their last quarterly report. And you're not, Bloomberg won't pick up, for example, on the potential liabilities from the fire insurance until they're reported, which isn't going to come yet. And so there's this gap in information, gap in what's going to be fed into your machine, which in theory creates a fog within which opportunities can be found. Okay. So you're saying something like if there's a quant strategy that looks at, it buys all the cheap stocks on book value and sells all the expensive stocks on book value it may very well still be holding PCG because it's relying on some data feed or data set that hasn't yet incorporated the kind of legal overhang that is in the offing. The same thing is also, the same thing is probably also true of just humans, right? There are probably people who are just like, I mean, hopefully not too many of them, but there may very well be people out there who are just like, have a price to book screen and they just have, have loaded up on PCG based on their, their screen. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I guess that goes back to this overreaction, underreaction thing. Uh, I think your point about maybe taking price action out of the equation is valid. As a person who's tried some momentum trading recently, I am not fully 
on the take the price action completely out. But uh, I see I see the merits of what you're saying. Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's I'm not discounting momentum strategies. I'm saying for me, those aren't the strategies I use. And so I felt there was an inconsistency in how I was looking at new stocks. If I don't believe the price action matters all that much or not as a primary issue, I probably shouldn't be including that in my initial search for stocks is all I was. Great. So should we? But yeah, let's let's go into, and I think Tyler Scanlon's article is really good for just catching us up on what's going on, because I think there are a lot of issues at stake, and then we can get into the different players and different takes that people have based on what's going on. But there's a lot going on with PG&E, PCG, apparently refer to them either way. The most recent thing and where they fell off the table in November was that there was several wildfires in California, terrible tragedy, it led to a lot of lost lives. And again, this is part of the issue here. And I don't mean to minimize it. I don't think we need to minimize what's going on. We're trying to think through this, the equity market, but obviously there's bigger issues at stake. And that's affected PG&E as well. November is when the stock fell off the table as the fires raged. And as it became clear that they had some culpability, it wasn't just random fires. They, they sold off terribly. The market cap has fallen to, I think you said it's at about four billion right now. The company has, has the, has on the hook. They are, there were fires in 2017 that they were already exposed to liabilities for. And now they are potentially estimates have been as high as 30 billion liabilities for this new set of wildfires, which the company has. As we said, a market cap now of four billion, an enterprise valuation of about twenty-two billion. Like that's a lot of liabilities that could possibly approach them. Their debt is getting downgraded, which is bad as a sign and also bad because it means that generally they're gonna to have to pay a higher cost of debt if they need to raise debt, especially. They they and then Kyla didn't even get to the latest events. We didn't predict the future, but the company is, on the one hand, a monopoly. It's a utility company, highly regulated, but also the electricity provider in California, or one of the major electricity providers in California. It's not something that you can just ignore. And they also have gas. They're a gas utility as well. So you can't just, even when we talk about modern day monopolies like Google, Google went away. There would still be some functionality, whereas electricity you just kind of need. Then after Kyla's article, the company filed or announced their intention to file for bankruptcy, which is when the stock took another big hit down over a couple of days. It's sort of stabilizing since and actually has been since you wrote about it over the weekend. It's been up a little, I think. But that's the, the general story here is massive exposure to liabilities related to these fires in California, both from 2017 and 2018. The company is preparing to file for bankruptcy. On the other hand, and we'll get into this, there are Seth Klarman's investment firm, Baupost Group, most is their number one shareholder. And then there's another shareholder, Blue Mountain, who I think is number six in terms of their position size, who has published a couple letters urging the company not to go into bankruptcy, telling them that they can work out their problems without the bankruptcy. And so there's just a lot, when you think of this 
even the typical case in your article, you mentioned Volkswagen, which actually probably a pretty complicated case, but there's a lot of moving parts here. Are they going to need to, are they ultimately going to file? And there's sort of a near term deadline for this, which again, by the time you listen to us, may be playing out, but are they going to file? And what does that mean for, um, the equity? Is there going to be any equity preserved in the end? It's just a really, and then how these big players are dealing with this. There's a lot moving here. And so, so I think that's the, the guts of the story. What, any, any sort of thoughts on what stands out or what to, what to work through, Mike? Yeah, a couple things. One is we've encountered in the past couple podcasts a similar thing over and over again, which is kind of, there are these investing commonplaces. And I mentioned one at the top, there are market cliches, if you will. I mentioned at the top this idea that stocks go down faster than they go up. And that's actually only true under certain timeframes. Similarly, we talked about Bank of America and how a lot of people think that interest rates rising is of a benefit to banks. And we talked about how you need to get more granular than that. We've also talked about how midstream producers are not necessarily as vulnerable to oil price swings. And we talked about how that's kind of a problematic claim. Similar, we have a market cliche here. And actually, I'll bring out the robot. All right, so here comes Market Cliche Bot, and he will mention the Market Cliche. Beep, beep, boop, boop, boop. Utilities are completely safe, regulated, monopolies. So just as a reminder to our listeners, Market Cliche Bot comes out here, and he says a Market Cliche and then self-destructs. So thank you, Market Cliche Bot. Uh, I think that's pretty operative here. It's a cliche among investors that utilities are safe. It goes back, I think, even to Ben Graham and Warren Buffett. It has a long, proud history of regulated monopolies having very safe cash flows and dividends. What's interesting to me about this story is that PG&E is a regulated monopoly and a utility. It kind of is one of these seemingly risk-free stocks that we are seeing some real dramatic downside in. And so that's my first takeaway. Does that, how much, obviously we're, a lot of this is going to be beyond our full ability to analyze, but because it's a regulated utility and because they provide a good that is an essential to customers in California, is there a chance that the, what, how much do you, how do you navigate the political aspects of it? I mean, I guess it's the same with Bank of America. And we sort of talked without going right into it. We sort of got at the point of like deposit rates are not going up and other things that would engender goodwill, bad will. And with a utility, the government can't sort of turn the other way if, if lives have been lost, if people have died because of the fires that PG&E may have had a part in sparking but i don't know what how much is that something that you think there's a sensitivity analysis or do you just study what's going on in sacramento in this case or how do you how do you wrap your head around that so two things one i think that it's a part of the process it was part of my thought process at least around volkswagen we mentioned before when they had the emissions scandal come out 
And you could do just some pretty basic math, which was, you know, the, the stock tanked. And the question was, okay, is the diminishment of the company's value proportionate to the expected regulatory intervention? And there were just estimates you could come up with, you know, what, what was the bill that the government sort of sent to companies when a similar infraction had taken place in the past? And you could just do kind of do the math. And I think that's what we were getting at before with talking about the book value relative to the estimate of the legal liabilities here. So from the investor perspective, there is a playbook available to you. And then from the perspective of the regulators or the stakeholders, there's a sort of bigger questions about what a public utilities role is and what investors in public utilities are entitled to for owning the stocks in these companies. I, I think that's a good opportunity to bring up the work that Wyco Researcher, another Seeking Alpha author, has done on PG&E. Sure. Just published an article early this morning, that's January 23rd. His basic argument is that, first of all, bankruptcy protection is likely here. And he outlines just several factors that influence his assessment of that, including that you know, there is a need among many stakeholders in the situation for PG&E to continue its operations. You've mentioned that people need electricity and the company just is sort of does contribute to the public benefit. You know, a utility is in some ways, that's why it's a regulated monopoly is because there's a just recognition by the state that electricity and access to power is kind of to the benefit of the general public. And although people should be rewarded for creating and operating utilities, there is a component here where it's just the public welfare is at stake. So he mentions that as a reason why bankruptcy might be. And I think I don't want to put too many words in his mouth, but what that led me to kind of consider is like maybe bankruptcy is more attractive in that way because it gets the board of directors and gets management sort of out from under the specter of having to worry about equity shareholders and other people involved in the capital structure, it can resolve the claims and then it can move forward. And that's to the public's benefit as well as to the potentially the benefit of people involved in the operation, but maybe to the detriment of equity shareholders. But there's a, if you're going to, you have to cut the pie one way or another. And so one way to cut the pie is to just enter into this bankruptcy process, which is a formalized system for resolving all these issues and questions and these legal concerns, and then we can move on. So whatever Wyco's argument is, that's what came to mind for me. So that's leg one. Bankruptcy is likely. And that seems compelling to me based on what I've seen. Then this, a second issue he sort of considers is what's the, what's the risk in terms of the judicial settlement or the bankruptcy process, how likely are equity holders to have any residual value after that process is concluded? He's not optimistic there. And he mentions some specific characteristics of California. There's a lot of discussion in there about sort of eminent domain and something called inverse condemnation. 
Yeah, I think that's right. You're not supposed to have your assets taken by the government without just compensation. WICO says that's in the Fifth Amendment. Because PG&E is kind of in this gray area of public and private, then if it damages something, as it looks like PG&E caused these wildfires, WICO researchers phrases, you broke it, you bought it. So because there's this kind of public-private component to PG&E, there's a real chance that they have responsibility for all of the public damages that they created. If that's the case, then the math is pretty simple for the equity shareholders to be zeroed out. So I think that's kind of, it goes, so going back all the way to my comment about utilities being safe and being protected and their cash flows being really secure and low variance and they have this nice position of being a regulatory monopoly. I think we're seeing here the expression of the downside risk of being a company that's in that position. You're completely dependent for your cash flows on the good graces of your regulators because they enable you to set your prices and they sort of you operate under their good graces. And so if the regulators or the state of California ever determines that PG&E is, has not footed enough of the bill and its shareholders have are sort of earned their profits at the expense of the public benefit, then it's really seems like it's very easy for the government or the public to reclaim the assets and just zero you out. So that's kind of how I would consider how this intertanglement of public-private plays out and how we need to kind of interrogate this concept of a regulated utility being sort of a really safe conservative investment. What I like about WICO researchers' work is the author specializes in bankruptcy reviews, and these are these are processes that are tedious, legalese, there's a lot of patience and there's a lot of time you have to spend understanding things. The inverse condemnation point is particular to California and it's something he says that people who invest in that area are familiar with this and he took a short position or the author took a short position in November sort of as a knowing that this would help the thesis and help things play out. And so I wanted to say that because I think there's a solid legal grounding in the analysis. And it's interesting to then read Blue Mountain's letters that they've written to PCG in the last week or so, as of our recording, about the bankruptcy filing. And I just wonder, the WICO researcher piece almost serves as a, and refers to those letters, but I think serves as a helpful response in some ways to those letters. And so I wanted to just kind of touch on those because I think it's interesting, not familiar with Blue Mountain Capital. This is the first that I think I've heard of this specific fund. I think their arguments are relatively compelling, but what they, so they wrote on January 17th in response. The timeline here is that on January 14th, the company said, we have to go bankrupt. January 17th, Blue Mountain sent a letter saying, we think this is, not necessary because the company is solvent, which I think is really, if you're 
when you're in a position where a shareholder has to argue to management that no, the company's fine, it's solvent, like that's a really that's tough. Somebody's in the yeah in the wrong spot. I you know whoever it is. I want to jump in here too. I just uh, I want to read this paragraph from the Blue Mountain letter because I think it's instructive in a lot of ways. First of all, it says, "quote Recall that PG and E's 2001 to 2004 bankruptcy." So let's just stop there for a second. Uh, this these safe public utilities can go bankrupt with relative frequency, apparently. So that's 15 years since the last bankruptcy was resolved. So again, safe and secure dividends, we might need to rethink that. But moving on, recall that PG&E's 2001 to 2004 bankruptcy was widely regarded as a disaster for all stakeholders other than the company's senior management and outside advisors. It resulted in a destabilized power grid, higher electricity costs, and substantial investor losses. Customers were stuck with an estimated $6 billion to $8 billion in higher costs, dot, dot, dot. Meanwhile, legal and professional advisors were paid over $400 million, and 17 senior executives received $84 million in bonuses. And I'll stop quoting there. I think that goes back to our discussion of public versus private and how you divide all this stuff up. It's concerning to me that management would be compensated to that degree, I mean, I, Blue Mountain sort of makes an interesting argument there, right? That depending on how these bankruptcy processes go or how these solvency issues play out, different people have to front the cost. And we're kind of in a zero-sum game at that point. While, while we might kind of have some questions about the overall just, look, the company's solvent argument, that does seem concerning from an equity perspective, perspective just that the fact you have to make that argument is kind of scary. On the other hand, this sort of public-private how you cut the cake is is interesting or compelling to me. And when when the dis- and, and it's potentially powerful because if you have regulated regulators or the government who are sensitive to stakeholder needs in the ways that a company is not necessarily obligated to be and they are helping to decide the outcome, then that's an interesting position for Blue Mountain to take. In effect, they're kind of petitioning everyone involved at a juncture in the company's existence where everyone kind of is involved in deciding how this plays out from here. So I find that interesting. Well, and it's I, I've been following and own shares in a company that's sort of implicated through another legal case where it's more technical and there are no lives lost or anything, but it's one of those things where a lot of people are hopeful that the judge will take into effect, take into account the, the real life implications of whatever decision they make. In other words, if the judge rules one way that may cost jobs or that may cost the company, et cetera, like try to assess the, effects of the decision rather than just the pure legality and i don't know i'm not a legal expert and i think at all and at all (laughs) at all zero hardly i only follow the laws by luck i'm lucky but um, (laughs) sorry i'm overstating my point my point is just that it's hard to know how this will play out but i don't you kind of, the judge's job is 
to look at the why and enforce the why. It's not necessarily when you get into this, oh, but the impact is this or that, you're kind of falling out of rule of law. And that can be a slippery slope. And so that's where I think Blue Mountains, you, you were quoting their second letter, which they kind of went through. They have an appendix where they go through every potential stakeholder and explain why a bankruptcy is bad. And this is potentially true. And it's just interesting. I, I'm not necessarily disputing what they're saying. I want to go back to Lycone in a second, but they go for wildfire victims. This will add procedural roadblocks and delays for PG&E customers. It's going to increase the cost of capital, which will ultimately be borne by customers. For PG&E employees, it'll be tumultuous. It, you know, who knows what that affects your union contracts, etc. They even throw in, you know, this might affect the renewable energy ecosystem they're trying to build, though I think that's a little bit more speculative suppliers. And then, oh, just at the end, investors are going to be impaired by this, you know, as a reminder. And I just think that's, yeah, it's just a funny, you know, it's a, it's a fair case, but it's also a little bit wishful. Well, okay. Just, just a counter to that real quick. Judges aren't robots, they're human beings, right? And so Wyco mentions that Judge Alsop is the person presiding over the case and then describes some factors that may come into play in terms of how the decision plays out. And he mentions, you know, he's a Clinton appointee and has a history of liberalism and California is a liberal state. So my point here is that and in fact, it's just, it's not even a very interesting point. It's kind of obvious in a way that, you know, we see this all over in all sorts of legal debates that we're having now in the United States and have had in the past, which is just, there is the rule of law and obeying the law as the full extent of any kind of judicial decision. But it's just sort of an empirical fact that judges take additional things into consideration. That's why we have these arguments over judicial activism and all this other sort of mess of a legal system that I love so dearly in America, but that it is this, this flawed and content, contested process. And so I say that because I think that if you believe that's true, then you believe that a letter and petitions from stakeholders that include people like Blue Mountain can have an impact and those arguments can have some weight in the potential outcome here. Well, and there's, so one of the, the, the timeline here, as you're listening to it on January 29th, the bankruptcy hearing is scheduled as of January 23rd. We'll see if that still stays. The timeline that WICO gets into is that on January 30th, California Judge Alsop is what he's doing is he's hearing a case into whether PG&E violated probation of their San Bruno criminal conviction, which I presume if they did, would that would be where they would be held liable, I guess, is sort of how I'm interpreting this. But it, it, it just adds further, it adds further grist to the mill that this is that there may not, that PG&E actually may need to move to bankruptcy quickly. And so it just, it's just sort of, yeah, it, it may be at the point where Blue Mountain, maybe they were caught, the market apparently was caught blindsided to some degree, even though they're still pricing in the hope that there's equity recovery if the stock 
is trading where it is with four billion market cap, but it was more than double that before the bankruptcy filing. Like it could be just not realizing that was the case, but this is where I think actually, yeah, the theme we're hitting on is that utilities, like this is not steady any. There, there are a lot of factors here. Obviously, this is not going to happen all the time, but there's a utility that I once invested in called Scana Energy in South Carolina, and they had more run-of-the-mill problems with nuclear plant cost overruns, but that also has been kind of a mess. And they've been, they tried to, uh, there was an attempted merger. I don't think that's going through. There's a lot of political considerations. Actually, the stock has recovered quite nicely, but still, oh, it may, the merger may have gone through. So this may be outdated, but the point is that there's a lot of, this is not clean, cut, clear cut and dry investing, actually. Right. It's sort of like deceptive. You want to use a utility potentially in a, in a classroom setting or whatever, just because of it's easy to picture 10 years of very steady cash flows. And so if you're teaching students a DCF model, then you can use a utility as a kind of classic example of here's how the cash flows are going to come out. We have a lot of confidence in that. So here's our present value. This is the valuation of the company. But out in the real world, we see that regulators, stakeholders, potential for disaster, all these other noisier, more challenging issues do emerge. And so we can't be lulled to sleep by kind of the comforting mental model for what a utility is. I want to get into one other angle of this that I thought was interesting, which I, I mentioned it or you mentioned, one of us mentioned Bob Post Group, which Seth Klarman, who I'm a big fan of his investment style. I find when if you can find a copy of Margin of Safety out there on the web one way or the other, it's it's worth reading, I think. I think it became available on Kindle for like nine bucks. There may have been, yeah, there may have been some, I, think, I remember hearing it. I'm, I'm looking it up, but I think that there was a Kindle edition. Oh, maybe not. Maybe they took it back down. I'm seeing hardcover $874, paperback $794. So it still does have some of that mystique, although, the man, I would love to see the price chart for the cost of that book. <laughs> it probably did a PG&E nosedive when the Kindle edition was rumored or did actually come out. Yeah, that is that is a bear market price for margin of safety investing. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should buy some copies, do a value <laughs> value trap. Anyway, so Clarman's involved in in PG&E, and he's so, but he's the author of this famous sort of legendary book called Margin of Safety, which some people consider to be the inheritor to. Ben Graham's Intelligent Investor Security Analysis books and has had a really successful investing career across several cycles now, although I think potentially hasn't done as well lately, but in any case, widely respected, very, very rich fellow is involved in the PG&E story. So how, what's going on? So he's, they upped their stake in Q3, I think. Right, and everything kind of fell off the table in Q4. We haven't seen their latest 13F filing. We won't, we probably won't for another month. They upped their stake, and then they're apparently getting whacked on it, right? The stock is, and everybody is 
all the reporting around it is that, oh, you know, the shares have plunged a lot. They may have lost a lot of money, et cetera. What I think is interesting, we've talked a lot about how big shareholders such as Buffett, such as Berkshire, other big holders aren't necessarily using the same playbook as your individual investor. And they're not necessarily aligned with the individual investor, even if they own shares. So there's a Bloomberg story on Bloomberg.com about how they are reported, rumored to have a $1 billion of legal claims in November that an insurer held against the utility, giving the hedge fund the right to recover losses incurred from the deadly wildfires in 2017, according to people familiar with the matter. So, okay. So this is what they call an esoteric market for subrogation claims where insurers sell the right to sue the recoup damages suffered by policyholders. So there's, the way I understand it is that you have insurance on, you know, you have fire insurance, you file a claim, you get it, but then the insurer has to get reimbursed. And so then they try to go get made whole wherever they're going. That's where they're going to PG&E. And so if you can buy at 35 cents on the dollar, if, for example, if you're a bell post and you're aware of, and I'm, I'm, I'm using this as an example, not actual analytical prowess, but if you're aware of this inverse condemnation and you then buy up the insurance claims, well, you may at least get something out of that, even if your equity position doesn't work out very well. Like there's some, the, the calculus there is just different than it is for you and me. And so I just think that that's, it's another example of this. I think it's also, I don't know if, for example, Matt Levine has written about it, but it's right up his alley, just sort of these curious Matt Levine who writes Bloomberg and writes money stuff. It's just one of these quirky sort of curious situations. And again, not to make light of the underlying issues here, but it just, I thought it was worth talking about. It just struck me as remarkable and unusual. And so there it is. I I don't know. Mike, do you share any of those views or do you have any thoughts about this? I think you hit it pretty well. I mean, if you just take a toy model of this, I think the the potential payout of the claims was a billion dollars, which they bought for 300 and some million dollars. And then if the equity stake estimate is accurate at $873 million, then there's you can kind of do the math and see that that's a fairly well-hedged position and their net exposure in the case of a bankruptcy may be much less than just the stock exposure that you see in the 13F. Which just goes to your general point that the big boys play a little bit different type of game than people who are just looking at common equity investments. And you do have to be sensitive to the potential of hedging positions using derivatives or potential capital structure arbitrage plays. It's not necessarily smart to just blindly follow hedge funds into their long positions in common stocks as disclosed on 13F filings. So I think there's a couple broad takeaways that I'm getting out of this, which is one, we've said it a couple of times, but utility investing, don't, don't, not investment advice, but be careful about overestimating the security of a dividend in general, but especially utility plays. They, utilities had a good 2018, but regardless, each company is their own thing. There are some unique risks to the sector. We haven't even talked about broader issues like 
the change to renewables or whatever else. So like there could be, there's more going on. Don't just take it. Don't take the accepted wisdom. And I think the other big thing that we've hit on a few times in the past, but that this last piece hits again is know what you own and don't use the presence of a major investor as a security blanket. If anything, be on further guard against it because it may dull your willingness to look deeper. You just don't know their full analysis. You don't know their calculations and what they care about. And ultimately, whatever investment decisions you make are your own money and they're not responsible for it. You are. And so that's, um, yeah, I think that this more generally is a complicated situation, diving into the dumpster and betting on the bad guys. There may be something here. This, this, there's still four billion in, in market cap, but yeah, the, that's sort of my my takeaways here. Great, I agree. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, full cosine. All right, all right. Let's go. Let's go there. Yeah, take it. Take it while you, while it's on the table. <laughs> <laughs> all right, great. Okay, Daniel. Good time. All right, take care. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We hope you enjoyed it. Did we get anything wrong? Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com or tweet us at mbrookstaylor or at danielseekinga to let us know. Liking the podcast? Subscribe wherever you get podcasts and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for your support and see you next week on Behind the Idea.